Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. We can't confront identity politics until we confront what created and made identity politics necessary, namely American racism and race-based exclusion. We're not that far removed from Jim Crow, not to mention redlining and also um, the war on drugs, which all had devastating impacts on the black community and the black family. So given this history, given America's history and the ongoing disparities that we see, it's hard to overstate the importance of black representation in elected office. That was the voice of Justin Gibney to introduce us to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons on Faith Radio. I'm Paul Perot, and Gabe, like most times, we are dealing with a cultural hot potato. This time, the topic of identity politics. And I can't imagine a better person to listen to this month as we're kind of in the middle of this political season. You've got the Democratic primaries taking place, lots of conversation around politics and policies and who to vote for and why we should think certain ways. And Justin Gibney is someone we invited to give this talk called Confronting Identity Politics. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Justin is part of the Ann Campaign. It's a group with a mission to educate and organize Christians for civic and cultural engagement that results in better representation, more just and compassionate policies, and a healthier political culture. Now, Justin is a founding member of the Ann Campaign, and we'll be hearing his talk later in the show. Along with him as an executive leader is Michael Ware. Now, some may remember Michael as probably the most predominant evangelical serving in the administration of former President Barack Obama. Some may assume that means he is solidly a Democrat and upholds the entire Democratic platform. The reality is he doesn't. But more importantly, he doesn't want political titles to identify him. A few years ago, he spoke at a Q conference about being politically homeless, and maybe that's the place where we as Christians should be. Let's listen in. We all know the saying, politics and religion, the two topics you're not supposed to discuss at the dinner table, right? <laughs> Have you ever stopped to ask yourself why this is? It wasn't until recently I came to think the saying is generally true, but for opposing reasons. People don't want to talk about politics because they hold their views too tightly. Too much of their identity is staked in politics. People don't want to talk about religion because they are haunted by the idea that they do not stake their lives in the spiritual things enough that God takes up too little space in their life. C.S. Lewis writes in his essay, Membership, a sick society must think much about uh, politics as a sick man must think much about his digestion. However, if either comes to regard it as the natural food of the mind, if either forgets that we think of such things only in order to be able to think of something else, then what was undertaken for the sake of health has become itself a new and deadly disease. My friends, our culture and many people in our churches are sick with that new and deadly disease. Politics is causing great spiritual harm in America. 
This spiritual harm is reflected in our national anxiety. The American Psychological Association found that 52% of Americans felt additional stress due to the 2016 election. They called it election stress disorder. <laughs> Teachers reported students were fearful about the election outcome, even to the extent that they were having nightmares about it. The influence of political tactics is not confined to campaign dynamics. It affects how we are formed as people. Party polarization is up to an all-time high. We even change what we believe to fit the moment. Politics is causing great spiritual harm in Americans' lives, and a big reason for that is Americans are going to politics to get their spiritual needs met. This is the meaning of rising polarization. It's the cause of our zero-sum mentality. Politics does a poor job of meeting spiritual needs, but if it will get your vote, politicians will attempt to fill the spiritual void nonetheless. What we must understand if we are to properly diagnose and treat that which ails our politics is that the state of our politics reflects the state of our souls. Politicians can only manipulate those most personal parts of ourselves, our longings, our loves, our hurts, our passions, our hatreds, for their benefit because we make these things available for their use. The problem is not that we take politics too seriously. The problem is that we take politics seriously in all of the wrong ways. It would be tempting then, given the pitfalls of politics, to withdraw, to leave the political, maybe even the public, alone. I don't have time to make a full case for political involvement today, but let me quickly point to Jeremiah 29. These people, God's people, found themselves in a land that was not their own among a people who despised them. And yet Jeremiah's prophecy to them did not suggest that they lie low or that they take a posture of opposition toward the Babylonians. No, instead, they are instructed to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. One inescapable conclusion of this extraordinary command is that Christians are obliged to work for the benefit and flourishing of all people, whether or not they see the world as we do or agree with us in any way. A Christian's obligation is not to their tribe, but to their God, a God who cares deeply for all people. And if a Christian's political ideas and actions are not intended toward the good of their enemies, then their political witness is not Christian in its character. When it is, everybody benefits. Christians care about politics because we care about our neighbors and our communities, and political decisions greatly impact our neighbors' well-being. As a citizen, you do not choose to have political influence. You already have it. Therefore, your sitting out of politics does not absolve you of blame for the state of our politics. Your sitting out is your choice about how to steward the responsibility you have been given. Faithfulness is not confined to any one sphere of life. It might look different in different arenas, but faithfulness is for all of life, including the political. A holistic pursuit of justice, in this country at least, is inconceivable without political involvement. Politics is an essential form in which we can love our neighbor. At a time when our politics is so polarized, our political discourse so heated and prone to manipulation and personal attack, what we have to see is that this frantic performance, all of the bloviation, it does not, it belies a lack of confidence, not an abundance of it. 
Our political echo chambers inspire embattlement, but we cannot succumb to cynicism, to futility fueled by cultural analysis. I worry about a church that fears the power of culture more than it fears the power of God. Dallas Willard defines joy as a pervasive and constant sense of well-being. We should ask ourselves, as pastors, as leaders, as parents, as Christians, how much of our political discourse, not to mention our personal lives, is full of a pervasive and constant sense of well-being with joy? What does our answer say about us? I've been thinking a lot about the 23rd Psalm lately. I honestly used to think of it as something akin to a Hallmark card, a nice sentiment to be read at a funeral or maybe to put on a plaque for some corner of the living room. But this is to miss its meaning. The 23rd Psalm is not a reminder in the moments when we finally catch our breath. No, this Psalm is for when we are in the very thick of life, the very moment of crisis. David wrote it not when his circumstances were serene and comfortable, but in the midst of danger and great uncertainty. Today, the same God who led David beside still waters and prepared a table for him in the midst of his enemies, that God is alive and well today. And if David can find security in God while others plotted his demise, surely we can trust Jesus in our circumstances, personal and political. In the wake of the massacre in Charleston, where nine children of God were slain in their own church building while attending Bible study, uh, Bree Newsom felt God had called her to do something. And so on June 27th, 2015, Bree climbed the flagpole at the South Carolina State Capitol building to take down the Confederate flag. But I want us to watch together what Bree did. Jesus says in his Gospels, if you love me, you will obey my teachings. My Father will love you, and we will come to you and make our home with you. Am I politically homeless? Are we? If so, so be it. The crisis for Christians is not that we are politically homeless. The crisis is that we ever thought we could make our home in politics at all. Our home is with him who has made his home in us, and our hope is in the kingdom that is right at hand. If we find ourselves in Babylon, let's make sure we don't become Babylonians. The time for self-serving parochialism is over. The time for going to politics for self-affirmation and cultural expression has long passed. Christians go to politics to advance justice and affirm dignity. We get our emotional and spiritual needs met elsewhere. 
It is time for Christians to stop looking to politics for hope and to start carrying kingdom hope into politics with them out of love of God and for the good of their neighbors. That again was Michael Ware from the Ann Campaign on this edition of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Along with being part of the executive leadership of the Ann Campaign, along with Justin Gibney, who we'll hear from in just a few moments, the two gentlemen host a podcast called the Church Politics Podcast. You can find that on many podcast platforms. Both Michael and Justin host a podcast called the Church Politics Podcast, which you can find on many podcast platforms. Both Michael and Justin are also part of Q2020 this April in Nashville. Gabe and the team hope you'll be part of this year's Q2020 event. Gabe will talk more about it later in the show. But let me just say that even beyond the elections, this is an important year for the church and its witness and its effectiveness. So please go to q2020.org slash 2020 and learn more about the speakers, the curated events, and the special pre-conference changemaker summits for both church leaders and for city leaders. Let's get back to today's show. And Gabe, you know, there is an identity war of sorts going on. As Michael Ware just talked, uh, we as Christians need to be careful not to put our identity into politics, but many people do. So much so, identity politics is a real issue, and we look forward to Justin Gimity addressing that. And we wanted him to talk about this because that's so much of the game today is these identity politics kind of trickery where we're told we're part of this one group and we have to think this way. We're identified that way. And sometimes that doesn't pan out well. It's not always true. It certainly creates this general way of seeing the world that doesn't get into the specifics of individual lives, of attitudes, of belief systems. And so we wanted him to talk about that challenge, to talk both about identity politics but also about how do we move forward in that kind of space. Now, Justin has incredible experience in all of this. He's both the co-founder and the president of the AND Campaign, which is a coalition of urban Christians determined to address the socio-political arena with the compassion and conviction of the gospel. Super faithful. Him and Michael Weir and others are a part of that. But together, him and Michael host another podcast I'd love to recommend you called the Church Politics Podcast. It's just great talking about political issues. How should we think about those in the church? And let's face it, for the year ahead, that is a big conversation. And some leaders know how to have it. Others don't know what to do. So these kinds of sources, like these kinds of politics podcasts, like the Church Politics Podcast, I couldn't recommend highly enough because it allows you to at least hear other perspectives, get into the mindset of how should we think about these things. Uh, in addition to that, he's spoken at Q a couple of times, written op-eds for publications like Christianity Today and other newspapers. But what we invite him to do is help us to think beyond stereotypes today. And so listen in to Justin Gibney. So let's confront identity politics. My grandfather, Bishop Thomas Lee Cooper, was born in Brownsville, Tennessee in January of 1929, actually just a few days after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now, he was born into the Jim Crow South at a time when uh, Tennessee was ranked sixth in lynching. During that same time, in a massive failure of American federalism, the southern states were still systematically denying African Americans the right to vote. And while I was able to go up to Vanderbilt University just up the street from here and study social policy and later law, that just wasn't an option for my grandfather. They simply weren't admitting black people into the school at that time. Now, his family would move from Tennessee to Decatur, Illinois. 
which is just a, a few hours from Chicago. In Chicago, in 1951, 4,000 white Chicagoans rioted because a black family was moving into a Cicero neighborhood. Over and over again, we see race being used as a reason, as a primary reason for exclusion and an object of hatred. When I last visited my grandfather, who was in hospice, uh, he had two 8 by 10 photos over his bed. One was of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The other was of President Barack Obama. One represented a dignified struggle, the other an achievement within that same continuing struggle. Now, my question to you is, was his connection to those two men an example of identity politics? Sure it was. Was it shallow and naive? Absolutely not. Uh, let's think about it. Do you think that the Hebrews identified with Moses as he led them out of Egypt? Did Irish Americans uh, celebrate JFK when he uh, won the presidency? Of course they did, because it was inspiring and there was a practical element to it as well. One thing you should understand about the black tradition is that we tend to tell our children that they can be anything that they want to be as long as they work two times harder. And kids, being as inquisitive as they are, at some point are going to want evidence of that. And so as a black parent, I'm always looking for social proof to demonstrate that that statement is actually true. And so there's no better feeling than to see an accomplished black person be able to turn to my son and say, see, he looks like you. It's hard to explain, but just understand that it is a privilege to be able to take that type of identification for granted. Now, I say all of this to say that we can't confront identity politics until we confront what created and made identity politics necessary, namely American racism and race-based exclusion. We're not that far removed from Jim Crow, not to mention redlining and also um, the war on drugs, which all had devastating impacts on the black community and the black family. So given this history, given America's history and the ongoing disparities that we see, it's hard to overstate the importance of black representation in elected office. In some instances, we're just getting back to Reconstruction era levels of representation in our community. Now, the political right often talks about identity politics as if voting for someone who looks like you is a completely irrational and a purely emotional decision. But I'd have to disagree with that to some extent. Based on American history, it's actually a rational conclusion in some instances. To conclude that your interests won't be fully represented if no one making the decisions looks like you or understands your community is actually a logical deduction. It has a firm historical basis. And so if you look at it, almost every group, immigrant group coming over from Europe did the same thing in until they were able to blend in with the majority. And obviously, black people can't blend in with the majority in that same way, right? So to say that identity politics is always irrational or it's always a bad decision isn't seeing the whole picture. And we also have to realize, because it fails to uh, acknowledge, that taglines like Make America Great Again are actually appeals to identity politics. And those particular appeals are sometimes really cleanse and don't really talk about what America's history actually looks like. So that's part of the story, but it's not the complete story because it's a little more complicated than that. While I believe that identity politics is often a rational decision, I also understand that the analysis can't end there because politics is tricky and someone can have the same race and gender or class as you and not represent you in substance. 
And Christians always have to care about substance. Even worse, somebody could use that identity connection to lead you into a direction that separates you from your identity in Christ. And your identity in Christ always has to be important. Hopefully many of us learned early on in life that you can't judge a book by its cover. Also that you shouldn't stereotype people because it's not fair to them and it could mislead you. Here's one of the problems with identity politics. The truth is that we can't determine someone's character or motives from racial ontology or gender. Someone could have several layers of intersectionality and be honest and competent. Someone could have that same profile and be deceptive and incompetent. Shared identity just isn't an indicator of integrity or ability. To pretend otherwise might make for a good tribal tweet, but it's actually fictitious and dangerous. No identity group is unbroken. Second, Anytime something galvanizes and drives people in the same way as identity does, I can guarantee you that some opportunists will find a way to use it to their benefit. They'll find a way to manipulate and exploit it, especially in politics. You have to be watch out for that because political tribes want to attach their values or their agenda to your identity. Because if they're able to attach their agenda to your identity, then they pretty much control all your sociopolitical decisions. And this is happening. This is one of the ways where identity politics can be misused. Right now, the far left is using, in some elements of it, is using identity politics to attach their values to the black and brown identity, while at the same time erasing the more centered or traditional black and brown witness from the public square. The data shows that only about uh, a fourth of black people consider themselves to be liberal but almost all of our federal officials, elected officials, have taken the most extreme leftward positions on, on social issues. How does that happen? It certainly doesn't happen by accident. It happens by design. Progressive politics has designed it almost so that uh, it is hard to have any other option. In urban America, if a minority wants to run for office, it's almost a given that they will have to espouse these very Western European secular progressive values, even if it conflicts with their faith tradition. This presents minorities with the perception of greater representation, but it's really only a partial representation, and it actually devalues our moral point of view. Let me give you an example. My good friend, Dr. Jaha Howard, is a dentist and he's an education advocate. He was running for Georgia State Senate and was doing an excellent job, everything was good, until he refused to bow on issues like abortion and the historic Christian sexual ethic. When the progressive establishment found out about that, they did all they could to smear his name in the district, to smear it on the internet, and many of his staff members and consultants ended up resigning because they feared being attached to someone with such strong Christian views, even though they knew it before and knew that he was a great and compassionate person. These things are interesting. You see, the same people who claim to be sometimes all about in diversity and inclusion are actually excluding some minorities based on their religious beliefs. They talk about the civil rights movement, but today leaders like Fannie Lou Hamer and Dr. William A. Jones likely wouldn't even be able to be in leadership in many progressive circles because of their biblical values. You quickly begin to understand that our cultural identity is political capital, but our core identity in Christ becomes problematic. I'll conclude with this. Christians on the political right who want to get rid of identity politics should first fight racism and support minority leaders without erasing their witness. And Christians on the political left who understand why identity politics exist must also understand its limits and how it can be misused. 
Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that talk. And that's the exact types of talks we try to do at our Q conference. So every April, we've been doing this for 14 years, but this is the year. If you haven't been before, you have got to be in the room with us. It's April 22nd to 24th. Come join with 2,000 others to hear talks about the year ahead. We're going to be talking about this Trump dilemma. What, what are Christians supposed to do about this? How do we engage? What is happening in that whole space? We're going to talk about suicide. We're really trying to engage some of these difficult conversations around gender. We know that the gender and transgender conversation is one that many of us are not only having with friends, we're having with kids and just trying to understand how do we think well about that and how do we engage that type of difficult conversation. In addition to that, we're going to have Justin Gibney with us and Michael Weir from the Ann campaign talking about the election season. We have Eric Metaxas, who's been a pretty pretty big advocate for Donald Trump. And we're also going to have David French, who's another Christian who's been absolutely against Trump and, and would be part of starting the Never Trump movement. And at the Q stage, we're going to talk about that. How can these two Christians disagree about that? Why do they disagree? Is there any room to get along on this? Or is the year destined to be divided. But in in addition to that, it's going to be great. We've got the executive director of Sundance Film Festival. And Sundance is just one of those cultural kind of iconic spaces that really is on the front edge of artists telling stories. And we're going to have a conversation with the executive director of Sundance along with a guy named John Pretty, who leads something called the Windrider Forum. And I'm excited about this because together we're going to have a conversation about how over many, many years they've become friends, how they do this thing where Several hundred Christians come to Sundance, take in the films, interview directors, have conversations about their stories, about faith. And it's all within this space, this public square that's pluralistic, where they might not agree or believe the same things, but they're able to have productive conversations that really help move things forward. Those are the types of things happening at Q. In addition to that, we're going to have film screenings, private concerts, exciting experiences designed to help you get out in the city. And this not just be a place where you're thinking a lot and you're hearing a lot, but you're actually able to talk, engage, dialogue, learn from the other people sitting around your table at dinner time or enjoying a great evening experience. So learn more about that at qideas.org slash 2020. And our price increases in about a week on February 13th. So take note of that. And if you've been thinking about joining us, if you haven't quite mapped out your year of what are you doing for your own learning, make Q the place. Do it now. Make plans. Join us April 22nd to 24th. This program is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.